You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional audio resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Church family, good to see you here this morning. Hope you're doing well. So you grab a seat there. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn, me, turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, we're going to continue here in this study we've been doing through the book of Haggai, one of your prophets in the Old Testament, minor prophet. Hope you've been enjoying this study. Hope it's incredibly practical, meaningful for you. I know for me is every time that I read through the book of Haggai, it is a sweet, it is beautiful, amazing kick to the face every time I go through this. <laughs> In all seriousness, it is, it is just a good recalibrating conviction of what is eternal, of what matters, of, of what is worth giving my life for. It's the kingdom of God to the God who has purchased us and bought us and redeemed us for his glory. And what we've seen so far in the first two movements of Haggai, the first was that of kingdom priority. The truth that God has not liberated his people from bondage and captivity to give them a new freedom just so they could spend the rest of their days investing into their own kingdom. He has redeemed us. He has freed us. He has released us so that we would be free to pour into his kingdom, to worship his name above all other names, because that's where our greatest joy is found. And then we saw in the second message that of kingdom perspective, that as we are a kingdom people with a kingdom priority, getting back to kingdom work, investing into the Lord's mission for the days that are ahead of us, that we would not spend our days stuck in reverse, only looking through the rearview mirror at what God used to do, only looking at the good old days of when God was alive and active. But no, we would look through the front windshield of faith with trust that our God is alive and on the throne and there is a greater work in front of us that is still to be done. We would trust him as we move forward into that work, kingdom priority, kingdom perspective. And now this week, we're going to look at the issue of kingdom purity. And what's interesting about this week is we see this third message in the book of Haggai is now that the people have gotten back to work, there's another issue that arises, a third issue now that will arise to the people. Only this time, it's not the people who halt the work, but it's God who is going to halt the people. Because even though they have been zealous and repentant in their heart and they're zealous for the work of the Lord in front of them and they have put their hand back to the stones to start building that temple, the truth is there is an error that has crept into their theology and their anthropology concerning the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And really how these two issues are going to play out, what we're going to see in this One is that as the people have gotten back to work, again, zealous for the Lord's kingdom now, as they began putting brick after brick into this temple, they began to believe the idea that because they were working on something holy, that that made them holy. That somehow it was their external works of religiosity that was earning them the righteousness of God. And God's going to have to speak to that issue. The other issue is that as the people got back to work, and you got to remember, prior to this, there had been 15 years of famine in the land. 
because of their idolatry, according to Deuteronomy 28, God had halted all the crops from growing in their land. And so they were struggling to get by, but they, they now wrongly assume that just because they get back to work, just because they do this external work of religion, that they are now entitled to the blessing of God, that he might reverse their physical misfortunes simply because they've started doing this external work. One is the issue of legalism. The other is the issue of prosperity gospel. And both of these are heresies that will deviate God's people from the gospel altogether, if not careful. And God, as a merciful God, is gracious to pause the people before they go any further into these misconceptions or misunderstandings about how the righteousness and about how the blessing of God works amongst God's people. So let's look at this right here, Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 10. We see here that it is now on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius that the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. It is December 18th, 520 BC. We are about two months since the last message that Haggai preached and about four months since the first message that Haggai preached. Four months in now to this kingdom work and the Lord brings in the prophet Haggai and he has a question here. He says, Haggai, here's the deal. I want you in verse 11 to ask the priests about the law. I want you to ask the priests to make a ruling on the law. And remember, the priests, they're the spiritual leaders of God's people. They were the ones responsible for upholding the Torah, the law of God and the ordinances of God to govern the lives and the hearts of the people. In fact, Malachi chapter 2 verse 7 tells us that the role of the priest was to know the law and to teach the law in such a way that it could be used, that God's word could be used to govern the hearts and the lives of God's people in their service unto the Lord. Like that's the role of a priest, to be this mediator to shepherd the hearts, the people of, the heart, the, the people of God and their hearts unto his kingdom purposes. And he asked them, I want you to make a ruling Some of your translations say, I want you to to ask them about the law. I want you to help settle an issue. And here's what's going to happen. God's going to put his people on trial. And the prosecuting attorney is going to be the word of God, the law. And the witnesses that he's going to call to the stand are going to be the priests. And tell me how this looks, how the law gets applied in the hearts of the people. I want you to make a ruling. And he's going to ask them two questions. And here's the first one in verse 12. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or or really any kind of food, does that food become holy? And the priests answered and rightly said, no. According to the law, that's, that's not how that works. And, and so what you see here, he's asking the question, in other words, can an object that is dirty become clean just by rubbing up against something that is clean, something that is holy? 
Is that how the law works amongst God's people according to Levitical law? And the answer is no. Because here's what you need to know about the Levitical system. Whenever God's people sin, and this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, that sin always demands a penalty of death. The eternal alienation from God, death, must take place when God's people sin. It costs them their lives. But God, in his mercy along the way, would develop a Levitical system of sacrifices, a temporary system of sacrifices, in order to show the people that a substitute was demanded in their place in order for them to live, in order for them to be forgiven. And so they would offer up a variety of sacrifices, as spelled out in Levitical law, oftentimes an unblemished animal, depending on what the sacrifice demanded. And whenever that animal was being sacrificed, the priest would take the meat of that animal that was required by law, and they would take that meat holy and unblemished, and put it in the fold of the garment so that it could be transported from the place where they sacrificed up onto the altar where it would be burnt as a burnt offering. That meat was holy, and they had to put it, that priest had to put it in the fold of a garment so that it wouldn't touch anything. Because if along the way that fold touched something, that meat, even the fold that it was in, touched something, and not even something unclean, even something neutral, like bread and water and oil, whatever it may be, in that moment, that something that it touched would become unclean, and that sacrifice would be defiled, and you would have to go start all over again and re-slaughter another animal, put the meat in the fold of the garment, and transport it to the place of offering. It wasn't allowed to touch anything lest it be defiled. And so again, the first question here is, if you're carrying something holy in your fold and that something touches something else, will that object become holy? In other words, can holiness be transmitted? Does it have the Midas touch? That he can just touch something and make it holy. And the answer is no. Not only theologically, in life it doesn't work that way. You can't take something that's unclean and make it clean just by rubbing up against something. Um, case in point, it's fall. Everybody's about to be sick. We're all about to go down. Doesn't matter. <laughs> we catch what? What's the old phrase go? You catch a cold. You don't catch health. Doesn't work that way. If you've got kids and you've ever been to the pediatrician's office, when you go in, oftentimes they'll have a sick child room and a well child room as the waiting room. And they don't separate those because they're afraid that all the sick kids are going to rub up against the healthy kids and be made well. They don't do that. No, they're afraid of the hundred pounds of snot coming out of that kid that's going to rub up against my kid and get them sick. So no, we separate them. You don't catch health. You catch colds in that situation, right? And, and so in the same way, holiness is not transmitted to people or to things by osmosis. It does not work that way. And so in fact, what Haggai's going to do is he's going to get the priests to prove from the law that it actually works quite the opposite. You see this in verse 13. Haggai said, if someone who is unclean because 
of contact with a dead body. So let's just stop there. That's Leviticus 22. The law said that if one of God's people touched a dead body, doesn't matter if it was a human body, doesn't matter if it was a, an animal carcass, it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter whether it's at a funeral or in prep and burial, doesn't matter whether it's um, like Samson and the lion, doesn't matter. When you have touched a dead body, ceremonially that made you unclean, that made you unable now to go into the temple and present your offerings and worship the Lord. What you would have to do, according to the law, is you would have to go wash yourself in a mikvah, a ceremonial bath, as a symbol of your cleansing, and then you would remain outside of camp until evening, and then you could come back in as clean. That's how that worked in Leviticus 22. And so he's simply asking, if you have been made unclean after touching a dead body, and then you were to immediately go and touch any of these, meaning what he was talking about in verse 12, the, the bread, the stew, the wine, the oil. If you were to touch any of those things after having touched a dead body, do those things then become unclean? And the priest answered, well, yeah, they become unclean. And that's true. Again, Leviticus 22, there is a very clear pathway of what's going on here. And why God gave these instructions is he was teaching his people of how to approach God. You are, as a fallen, sinful human being, a fallible human being, you are unlike God. God is holy in every way. And we don't approach God on our terms. We approach God on his terms. And he was teaching his people about holiness, about sinfulness, and about the nature of God versus the nature of man. That's why he was giving these laws. And so they understood these laws clearly here. And so these people right now in this moment, he says here, um, if you touch them, will you become unclean? Well, yeah, of course you would. Because we know from verse 12, it is impossible to commute or transmit holiness. But what about transmitting unholiness? No, it is totally possible. If you go take that dirty thing and rub up against it, it will make you unclean. And again, this works in life too. We can go back to the old adage of doing laundry. Get you a load of 50 white socks, drop in the one red, who's going to win? Right? <laughs> Every time the red's going to win, it doesn't matter how much Tide Color Guard magic you got in there, the red's going to win every time. Same deal, and I see this all the time with parents in parenting. I've got an unruly kid in public school I'm going to take them out of public school and put them in private school because that'll clean my kid up. No, it won't. I've seen it. Because the problem is not the school. The problem's in what's in that kid's heart. Switching schools, the sin just comes with them. That doesn't change. There must be an internal cleansing that takes place. And likewise, when it comes to our sin, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, just a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, will leaven the whole lump of dough. That's how sin works when it comes to us versus God. And so according to the law, holiness cannot be transmitted by contact, but uncleanness can. Why are we walking through all of this right now? Like Haggai, why are you dredging us through Leviticus 22? Why? Answer, verse 14. Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. So it is with this nation. There's that 
this people again. Not mine, these people. Before me, declares the Lord. And so it is with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Ezra tells us that when the people returned to start rebuilding the temple, the first thing they did was put up altars of worship to worship God. But at the same time, this errant theology, this errant anthropology had had crept into the camp here. And now all of a sudden, he's telling them all the work that you've been doing thus far. It's been about four months since they've been back to work on the temple. All that you had been doing in these minute bits of work was unclean. Even though we have seen glimmers of repentance towards the work of God throughout, the truth is, deep down within these people, this errant belief has developed that God's work could be used like a lucky rabbit's foot. And again, it's in those two ways. If I take this holy brick and I stack it upon that brick and put one upon that brick, that holiness makes me holy. And because if we just get back to work, we've had 15 years of famine in our land if we just get back to work and do this holy thing then all of a sudden God will reverse all of our physical misfortunes and give us all this blessing back and in this moment they felt it was it was their works for God that entitled them to those things these two issues are the same issues we face today legalism and prosperity gospel these two are fraternal twins they look a little different, but they're actually identical. And they actually come from the same root of self-rule within a person, desiring to, to be on the throne of their own life. And what happens here in this moment is it turns into this man-centered gospel, which is no gospel at all. And let me just be real straight in this room because I know I've battled both of these myself, believing these type of tendencies. And I have no doubt in this room today, there are some who you've come in because you feel simply by being in a church building like this merits righteousness with God for you. That simply by just showing up and being part of a religious work, maybe dropping money in an offering box will somehow invoke God's righteousness in your life. It'll make you clean and make you right with him. And in the same way, I know there's others in here who, because you're walking through a tremendous amount of suffering right now and pain that all of us walk through from time to time, and you're walking through it right now, this was kind of that moment whenever we hit that pain, we're like, all right, that's it. I just, this means I just got to get right with God. I'm going to go to church this week because if I just show up at church, then maybe God will stop the suffering and I'll be entitled to peace and prosperity and wealth and whatever may else it be come back into my life. That's what we believe. And here's the truth. The dangerous trap about that kind of theology is even though it looks sincere on the outside through religious activity, when you strip it down to its core, it is nothing more than karma-based witchcraft. It is believing in some magical works-based formulas and incantations that will somehow invoke the blessing of God conditioned upon my performance. As if there was some sort of prerequisite course in morality and deeds that will somehow qualify us for God's grace. Like that, that's an oxymoron actually when you think about it, working for God's grace. It's like jumbo shrimp or plastic silverware. Those are oxymorons. Trying to earn grace. Grace by definition is unmerited favor. 
what makes it unmerited is that it's unmerited. It's nothing that you can earn. It's only freely given. And so in this moment right here, y'all, this is so important. I don't want us to misunderstand the connection between morality and obedience and the righteousness of God and the blessing of God of what that looks like in a believer's life. This is too important for us to miss. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to hold your place in Haggai for just a moment. I want you to flip to your right towards the end of your Bible to the book of Titus. The Apostle Paul is going to show us explicitly how grace changes everything. Titus chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul's writing to a young pastor here, asking this pastor to make sure he rightly instructs his church on what motivating grace looks like in the life of a purified people. Titus chapter 2, pick up in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now let me explain what this passage is saying. Prior to Jesus Christ, there is a large majority of us that would feel an internal conscience probably, especially if you've grown up in the South here, that there is some higher power out there. There is some God who's presiding over everything. And even internally, we come into this world feeling like somehow that God is already mad at me. And I must somehow do a number of things in order to earn the salvation that that God has to offer for when this life is finished. And so what we do even unknowingly, what we do is we go into our spiritual garages from a young age and we pull out a ladder and we erect that ladder all the way up to God and we feel like if we can just climb certain rungs, it'll earn the righteousness and the salvation of that God. So if I'm just a little bit more good than I am bad, if I if I can just say the right words, if I can maybe be part of some religious activity, if I can just commit to some social justice and, and just see the, the, the playing field leveled out, I will begin to just climb that ladder a little bit. And I, I realize I probably can't ever get to the top, but I'll get close enough and that God will qualify me based upon what I've done in his sight. And then somebody comes along and introduces you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they point out the fact, starting all the way back from the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, it is our sin that has separated us from God. It is because of our sin and rebellion towards God that is not just something we do, it's something that we're born with in us. That that sin has made it to where there is no way we can climb our way up to God. We have all, because of our sin, according to Paul in Romans, have fallen short of the glory of God. 
and we cannot save ourselves. But here's the good news of the gospel. God in his mercy and grace, out of the great love by which he has loved you, he has come down that ladder for you. He has sent his son Jesus Christ, not so that you would have to ascend in works, but he would descend to do the works that we could not do, being perfectly righteous, and then taking the penalty for that sin which we deserved, which was death. And he became the substitute that was offered for us, whereby he shed his blood, cleansing us of all unrighteousness. And by trusting in his works, not our own, we can be saved. His grace for us. And when that moment sets in into any believer in this room, but you remember where that salvation came for you, what we then do is we take that ladder that we formerly had and we pull that ladder down and we throw it back in the garage because we don't need it anymore. We've been saved by grace, not by works. And we receive it and we rest in it until we read verse 12 of Titus chapter 2. And then we go, oh my goodness. Now I've got to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions. I've got to spend the rest of my days living self-controlled, upright, godly life. I can't, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. God's going to be mad at me if I, if I don't get rid of this worldly passion within me, if I don't put away this ungodliness. God's going to be mad at me. And so you know what we do? We go back in the garage and we grab the ladder. Now, we don't need the ladder here anymore because we've been saved by grace, but we feel we need the ladder over here because now we need to be loved by, by works. And so I'm going to put that ladder up and I'm going to start climbing again and I'm going to start performing not to get salvation. That's verse 11. I already got that. This is verse 12. I need, I need my works so that God won't be mad at me, so his favor will be upon me, so that I'll get the blessing back in my life that I'm looking for, so suffering will stop. And see, here's the problem with that. Here's the tragedy in that. When we believe that it is grace that is needed for salvation, but it is works that is needed for being sustained, that's heresy. And that is the same heresy that Paul battled against in the book of Galatians when he wrote to them who have received that, that salvation by grace and now are trying to perfect it by their works. He wrote to them, he said, who bewitched you? Who bewitched you? Like who came in and stole from you and convinced you that was once perfected, by, that was once given to you by the Spirit, now all of a sudden you got to perfect it by your own works. He said, that's not how it works. You're not saved by grace and then sustained or sanctified by works. That somebody's bewitched you if that's what you think. No, in fact, in Titus chapter 2, you need to see there is a key word that we need to see here that makes sense of this whole passage. What is the very first word in verse 12? Some of your translations say training. Some of your translations say instructing. It's actually a Greek word that we get the word pedagogy from, which means to teach means to teach and in the same way that a parent teaches a young child how to grow into maturity this is happening here but here's the million dollar question what is the subject that is doing the teaching the training or the instructing do you see what it is 
It's in verse 11. It's the grace of God. Simply put, the same grace in verse 11 that brought you salvation is the same grace in verse 12 that is going to teach you how to walk and live out that salvation and grow in maturity. It's not grace plus works, it's grace plus grace. It is grace that will teach you. It is grace that will compel you. It is grace that will motivate you to be godly. It is the Spirit's work that will empower you to live a sanctified life, just as it was the Spirit's work that brought you the righteousness that through Christ's power of resurrecting from the grave and the cross. External law is a horrible motivator for life transformation. It'll work for a little while. There's a time when we use it on our kids, but simply because we don't want them to die. And so we just want to keep them alive for a little bit. But ultimately, law won't sustain you for the long, the long haul. It is grace. It is grace that must sustain us for the true, long-lasting, internal joy and righteousness that our souls long for and God desires in his people. You want to know how you can tell if external law is what's driving your relationship with God? It'll show up in one of two ways. It'll either show up in fear and insufficiency or it'll show up in pride and self-sufficiency. It'll show up in one of two ways. With fear and insufficiency, we'll call this the deficit thinker. This is the individual who constantly feels that they are in debt for God's approval. That there's just something God's mad at them at, something more that they need. And so they've got to do more, they've got to try harder, and then they fail. And that only puts them in more of an emotional debt. And so now I've got to do more and I've got to try harder and then I fail again. And then that cycle, when you're trapped in that cycle, deeds just become a painful reminder to you at all times of how deeply insufficient you are. And it dominates your life with constant despair and shame and self-condemnation. And you end up just flaming out from straight exhaustion because you realize you'll never earn up to God's righteous requirements. And if that's not you, then chances are that vacillates to the other side, and a lot of times it's both, of pride and self-sufficiency. And this is the one who's not the deficit thinker, they're then the overabundance thinker in terms of I've got it all within myself. And somehow there is this perception that I'm actually succeeding at my morality, and that's what qualifies me. And it leads to me accomplishing this man-centered works for the favor and the blessing of God. And the only way this works, by the way, the only way you can actually think you're succeeding is when you stop comparing your works to God's and you start comparing your works to other people's. Because we're always going to find somebody we perceive to be worse than us. And so what happens is we start comparing. And in the moment we do this, it creates this theological Darwinism. We're, we're now, let's see if this doesn't sound familiar, I feel good about how bad you are, which then makes me feel great about how good I am, and if I feel good about me, then God feels good about me. But if I don't feel good about me, then God must be mad at me. And in both scenarios, by the way, whether living out of fear and insufficiency or, or pride and self-sufficiency, again, the root of them both is self-rule. It's somebody who wants to use their works as the throne of their life to control. 
And if I just do enough, then God will love me. And if I don't do enough, then he must hate me. And I live in this constant vacillation between the two. And both of those, though, are actually mirages, giving you the appearance of a reality that's not truly there. And you miss the whole point of it all, which is it's grace that saves and it's grace that sanctifies you. And you've heard me say this a hundred times. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you and bless you anymore. And there's nothing that you can do to make God love and bless you any less. Because he doesn't love and bless you based on your performance. He loves you and he blesses based on the performance of the perfect, sufficient sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And that is what frees you up to rest and be compelled forward. And that's what he's after. So God, go back to Haggai here. God is saying here to his people through Haggai, your religious activity is not what makes you holy. I'm who makes you holy. And it's through my grace received by a heart that is contrite and fully mine. That's what compels a kingdom purity. But if you notice, there's that last issue too. The emphasis of kind of that prosperity gospel, the invoking of blessing. We'll finish here. Look at verses 15 through 19. In 15 through 19, he's going to speak to the the condition of physical blessing in their life. Remember, they've been in famine 15 years, and now it's been four months And nothing's changed. And the people are wondering why. We got back to work. We've been, we've committed to this holy thing. Why why has nothing changed? Listen to this in verse 15. Haggai says, I want you to consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, meaning before you got jump started, back to work on the temple with broken and contrite hearts, I want you to consider what kind of life you had back then. Same as chapter 1 we saw. How did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there was only 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there, there was only 20. You know, back when you put in all that exhaustive amount of energy into your labor, into your crops, into your harvest, and you got more than a 50% loss on your return. You are all this energy, and yet nothing is brought about this agricultural blessing. Why is that? And he says, I want you to know, back in that day, I struck you with all the products of your toil, with blight, which is a blasting wind that withers plants, with mildew, with hail, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Again, All those were the curses of judgment from Deuteronomy 28 that said, the moment you run to idols, I'm going to withhold the reins. And God did that for this specific people in this specific time because out of the love of the Father, he wants them to come to the end of themselves so they'll return to him. And he says, agriculturally speaking, in verse 18, has anything changed? Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, four months of religious activity, I've got a question for you. Verse 19, is the seed yet in the barn? The answer is no. 
There was no crop to get seed to put into storehouses. It's still empty four months in. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing for you. No, it it had all come up void. Even though you've been back to work for four months now and you still see nothing, you know why? Because God cannot be bought. Your religious works doesn't buy not only the righteousness of God, it doesn't buy the blessing of God either. You know where it comes from? It comes from the grace of God poured out on a broken and contrite people who recognize their dependence on the Lord and who are fueled, not fueled in a kingdom work, not because of the righteousness they'll get from it, not because of the blessing that they'll get from it, but because they've already been given a righteousness. They've already been given the blessing of God, and now they get to work from it instead of for it. And when you understand that, that's when grace will change everything. Because notice the last line in this preaching of Haggai. But from this day on, I will bless you. And you go, why? Why now? What changed? It wasn't their works that brought the blessing. Why is he going to bless it now? You know why? Grace. Grace in a repentant heart. Grace changes everything. Grace, not law, is what moved their hearts to, to full repentance. And God loves to pour out his blessing on a purified heart. And for the first time in 15 years, he will restore their land. It's a beautiful picture, y'all, of kingdom purity. And I think what we need to take away from this is a couple things. One, I'll speak to a couple groups in this room. One, if you are in this room because you feel you have been alienated from God, you feel that his kindled wrath is against you and you feel that you long for his salvation and you're here today because you somehow feel that by coming into a church building that merits you the righteousness of God. I just need to tell you this, that is not the gospel. That is not where your salvation is going to come from. That is not where your, that is not where your righteousness is going to be found, is in some religious activity. No, in, indeed, can I just tell you, those external offerings in and of themselves, they will not help you. Because your first problem isn't external, it's internal. And so the first place that needs to be rent is your heart unto the Lord. And here's the deal. What I can tell you is that this church, we don't have any sort of merit, treasury of merit that we can draw from to dispense to your account for being here today, as in some denominations. We don't have that. But you know what we can offer you? Is a Savior, Jesus Christ, who has merited your righteousness for you. By God sending his son to take your place and absorb the just wrath of God for the penalty of your sin, which was death. And he died that death for you. And he shed his blood for you, which has covered your sin. And if you will take your trust in your works and transfer that trust to the works of Jesus and rest in it completely and sufficiently, you can be saved. No other works you need but to rest in his by faith. 
to the other group of the people in this room, maybe the believers amongst us who have rested in that. You have taken down that ladder, but you find yourself daily erecting another one because you feel even though that you're saved, even though you're a son and daughter of God that can never be taken away from you, you just can't help but feel that God is the roaming ogre continually mad at you, frustrated at you. And so you have to put that ladder back up to perform and perform. You have to run on that treadmill of karma, hoping that it pays off more good than bad. Can I free you from that trap and that heresy as well? The same grace that saved you, according to Paul and according to Haggai, is the same grace that sustains you. He will bless you through Jesus Christ who has already gone to work for you. And you can rest in that and let that fuel you where we are now a people. And this this is what I I long for and I pray for that all of us, myself included, would get as Northway Church into the future, as a kingdom people with kingdom priority and kingdom perspective, is that we would also have a kingdom purity. That we would understand that we are a people working from what we have, not for what we can get. That changes everything. That we are a people who have already been given every, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, according to Ephesians, has already been given to us. And now, out of the joy of that communal relationship with God, we would be compelled by the Spirit to move forward out of what we've already been given and move forward by His grace, being a, a kingdom people of holiness and purity by what we've already been given. Amen? That's the hope. Now, I'll tell you this. In uh, two weeks from now, we're going to take a break next week. we got a little something-something going on next week. We're going to roll off. We're going to commission Northway Church next week. But we're going to come back in two weeks, and we'll finish Haggai. And we're going to look at the fourth and final message, and it is a message all about hope. We're going to spend the entire message up in the book of Revelation the whole time. So you've been longing for some eschatological hope. It's coming. He's going to give it to Zerubbabel, and I think we're going to experience it as well. So that's in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, let's celebrate together, y'all. Let's remember what we've been given in Jesus Christ through communion together. If you're a covenant member helping with communion, I'd love to invite you to the back. We still need five more covenant members uh, that can help with communion. So if you could just head to the back, they'll assign you there. And then I'll just simply say this again. If you are with us today and you have yet to transfer your trust to Jesus Christ, you would not call yourself a Christian. You have, you have not transferred your faith into the work of Christ and what his grace has done for you on the cross. And you're not there yet. We would say, man, we're so glad you're here. We would ask you, though, to hold off on this meal that we're about to partake in. Because this meal is a symbolic meal that is externally representing something that has already internally been given. And we want to celebrate that with the full depth of meaning in this place. And so we'd ask you to hold off, not out of shame or judgment, but simply we want it to mean something. And for those who have, who've trusted in Jesus, this becomes a weekly opportunity for us, again, to rehearse the gospel in in obedience to Christ's ordinance, to remember that when we take of this meal, we are heralding the death of Christ. And so take a moment here. These elements are passed out and think upon the offering that Jesus has already made for us and the implications of that offering through his sacrificial substitutionary death. And then here in just a moment, we will take this meal and celebration together.
Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. We want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. Northway meets every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., and 5.30 p.m., and would love you to join as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.